Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is your host, Brian James. Before we get to today's podcast... I just wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who has purchased my latest shamanic yoga video series on Vimeo. The feedback from you guys has been really great. And as always, I'm happy to provide resources that support your home yoga practice and deepen your exploration of yoga. Thanks also to my loyal patrons on Patreon. Your support is really what keeps me going. I would have given this project up a long time ago if it wasn't for you. Now, if you'd like to help keep these conversations freely available for everyone, and you have a few bucks a month to spare, please consider becoming a Patreon subscriber yourself. Membership starts at just $2 a month and gets you access to the private Medicine Path podcast RSS feed, allowing you to listen to early release of new episodes as well as bonus episodes and the complete podcast archives. Memberships at the $5 and $10 tiers get access to hours of yoga practice resources and digital downloads of my two books, Yoga and Plant Medicine and Harmonic Movement. Plus, you get to leave comments on podcast episodes, ask me questions, and connect with others. If you don't want to or can't offer ongoing support, then purchasing one of my yoga video courses or buying one of my independently published books is another great way to support the work I do. You can find links to all this and more at brianjames.ca. Thanks so much for listening. Now, on with the show.
Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. On today's episode, I speak with storyteller, writer, and sometimes acupuncturist, Tom Hirons. Tom was born and raised on the Suffolk-Norfolk border in East Anglia, but lived in Scotland for almost 20 years before gravitating to Dartmoor in the southwest of England. In 2015, he co-launched Hedgespoken Traveling Storytelling Theatre and Hedgespoken Press with his wife, the visual artist and musician Rima Staines. Tom also teaches the art and craft of storytelling and mentors other writers. You can find out more about Tom at TomHirons.com. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Tom Hirons on The Medicine Path. I'm here with uh, Tom Hirons, and uh, I want to thank you, Tom, for showing up today and accepting my invitation to have a chat about your work. Thank you for having me, Brian. It's um, it's lovely to be here, lovely to meet you across this strange medium. Yeah. Um, can you tell people where in the world you are right now? Where in the world I am? I'm in um, South Devon in the UK, uh, about uh, five miles south of Dartmoor um, in the southwest of the UK. Um, it's uh, near to Totnes, which is an interesting place, um, near enough to Dartmoor, which is a big, uh, well, big for Britain, um, wild place, wildish place. Um, it's a good place to be. Yeah, and a place that shows up prominently in some of your work. It's, uh, it's there in a lot of it. Dartmoor, uh, I, I lived in Scotland for t- about 20 years. Um, and when I left Scotland in 2010, I really thought that I would never live in England again because it's so crowded and essentially suburban. Um, and you can't walk anywhere without being in someone else's footsteps. Um, and so I went to live in Southwest Wales. And when uh, my partner, Rima, and I started courting, she um, lured me down to Dartmoor, which I'd never seen growing up on the other side of the country. And suddenly here was this, uh, this huge beast of a piece of land, curious, strange, uh, a lot of amazing old history, but still alive and brooding and occasionally eating people. And I thought, here is <laughs> here is somewhere that I, I can live. I, I can't stray very far from it, um, but... Uh, just knowing it's there is, is a great, um, great comfort to me. Yeah. Would you, would you say, um, that you prefer the wild places? Do I prefer the wild places? I prefer the wild places, Brian. It's yeah. true. <laughs> I put up my hand. <laughs> I lived, I lived in, in Edinburgh, in, um, uh, for a, a long time, uh, without, I think, realizing how, how mad the city drove me. Mm. There's a lot I love about the city. I miss dancing. I miss clubs. Um, but, uh, the, the wild places for sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'd say from my personal experience, don't be so sure you still miss those things. Cause I know my wife and I moved back to the city after living in a more natural place for a number of years. We went back to the city a few years ago to, to try it out. Um, mm. 
because we kind of missed some of that too, or we thought we did. And then once we got there, we realized, actually, no, we got that all out of our system a long time ago and we just yearned to be back in the wild. So that's where we are now. <laughs> yeah, there, there's, there's no going back for me. I'm, I'm far too far gone. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, the reason why I wanted to talk to you, and I, I've told you this before, um, but a couple weeks ago, a poem that you wrote some years ago now just um, found its way into my inbox, <laughs> Sometimes a Wild God. And it was the first thing I read upon waking. There's something about the title that grabbed me. And uh, I read it while in that liminal space between dream and waking. And it, it stirred something deep in me. I felt a really strong resonance with it. Sometimes a wild god. Sometimes a wild god comes to the table. He is awkward and does not know the ways of porcelain, of fork and mustard and silver. His voice makes vinegar from wine. When the wild god arrives at the door, you will probably fear him. He reminds you of something dark that you might have dreamt, or the secret you do not wish to be shared. He will not ring the doorbell. Instead, he scrapes with his fingers, leaving blood on the paintwork, though primroses grow in circles round his feet. You do not want to let him in. You are very busy. It is late or early, and besides, you cannot look at him straight because he makes you want to cry. The dog barks, the wild god smiles, and holds out his hand. The dog licks his wounds and leads him inside. The wild god stands in your kitchen. Ivy is taking over your sideboard. Mistletoe has moved into the lampshades. And wrens have begun to sing an old song in the mouth of your kettle. I haven't much, you say, and give him the worst of your food. He sits at the table bleeding. He coughs up foxes. There are otters in his eyes. When your wife calls down, you close the door and tell her it's fine. You will not let her see the strange guest at your table. The wild god asks for whiskey, and you pour a glass for him, then a glass for yourself. Three snakes are beginning to nest in your voice box. You cough. Oh, limitless space. Oh, eternal mystery. Oh, endless cycles of death and birth. Oh, miracle of life. Oh, the wondrous dance of it all. 
You cough again, expectorate the snakes, and water down the whiskey, wondering how you got so old and where your passion went. The wild god reaches into a bag made of moles and nightingale skin. He pulls out a two-reeded pipe, raises an eyebrow, and all the birds begin to sing. The fox leaps into your eyes, otters rush from the darkness, the snakes pour through your body, the dog howls, and upstairs your wife both exults and weeps at once. The wild god dances with your dog. You dance with the sparrows. A white stag pulls up a stool and bellows hymns to enchantments. A pelican leaps from chair to chair. In the distance, warriors pour from their tombs. Ancient gold grows like grass in the fields. Everyone dreams the words to long-forgotten songs. The hills echo and the grey stones ring with laughter and madness and pain. In the middle of the dance, the house takes off from the ground. Clouds climb through the windows. Lightning pounds its fists on the table. The moon leans in. The wild god points to your side. You are bleeding heavily. You have been bleeding for a long time. Possibly since you were born. There is a bear in the wound. Why did you leave me to die? asks the wild god. And you say, I was busy surviving. The shops were all closed. I didn't know how. I'm sorry. Listen to them. The fox in your neck and the snakes in your arms, and the wren, and the sparrow, and the deer, the great unnameable beasts in your liver, and your kidneys, and your heart. There is a symphony of howling, a cacophony of dissent. The wild god nods his head, and you wake on the floor holding a knife, a bottle, and a handful of black fur. Your dog is asleep on the table. Your wife is stirring far above. Your cheeks are wet with tears. Your mouth aches from laughter or shouting. A black bear is sitting by the fire. Sometimes a wild god comes to the table. He is awkward and does not know the ways of porcelain, of fork and mustard and silver. 
his voice makes vinegar from wine and brings the dead to life. There was a kind of familiarity for me in that I feel like it harkens back to that mythopoetic men's movement of the 90s led by poets uh, Robert Bly, storyteller Michael Mead, guys like that. Uh, it really um, brought up a, a lot of the same feelings that their work did and does con continually. And I could even hear Robert Bly reciting your poem in his uh, very unique voice, maybe growling like a bear or something. Um, now, I hope it's not uh, too old of a topic for you, but it, it's such a fresh thing for me. Uh, but I'm really curious, when that poem came to you, where were you at in your life and, and how did it come through? So I, I wrote Sometimes a Wild God, I think it was in 2012. Um, but for about two years before getting it down on paper, I had this line going around in my head, sometimes a wild god comes to the table. And I was sure that I'd read it somewhere, uh, that it was someone else's poem. And I was like, ah, this is a great poem. I can't remember anything about it, but it was a great poem. I must find this poem. And so every so often I would, uh, you know, I'd get on my computer and I would try and find what this poem was. And I just couldn't find it and couldn't find it. And so eventually, it occurred to me that if I had this line going around that seemed to come from a complete poem, perhaps I should do my best to complete the poem and, and get it down. And I'd been writing a series of poems um, about, about deity. Uh, and I'd been working with the Greek pantheon of, of deities. And I'd written a little bit about Hermes and um, uh, that was quite a good poem and a little bit about Apollo and that was a terrible poem um, wasn't my heart wasn't in it uh, and um, then it was like okay right it's time for it's time for the wild god um, how do we do this and it came pretty much in a wanna uh, one evening sitting down I was listening to some uh, very strange Ukrainian music uh, sitting, uh, we were living on, on the edge of Dartmoor then. And it, it came pretty much in a one, and I had a blog then that I, you know, had, uh, ooh, I think about five subscribers. And so I, I would occasionally put poetry and writing up there. And I put this up and, um, my five subscribers were quite, um, enthusiastic about it. And I thought this is nice. And then, um, I edited it very, very slightly and then went away. Uh, my partner, Rima, she's um, uh, half Kiwi, half New Zealand. And so we went to New Zealand this was back in 2013, I think, just, just before our first son was born. And um, woke up one morning and suddenly my, my tiny little website was getting tens of thousands, hundreds, hundreds of thousands of people on it. And it had been somehow taken up by, I think, some pagans in the US uh, who uh, <laughs> spread it far and wide. And that, that started something turning. 
and it's had its own kind of dance since then. Um, but when I was writing it, I I was very clear in in the the process that I was involved in and that I was learning then and that I'm still learning now, um, which is um, which is to tell the truth as best I can when I'm writing. You know, that's you know that's my opportunity to cast everything else aside and just dive and keep diving. And William Stafford, the poet William Stafford, talks about this. Uh, your job as a poet being to follow the thread, keep following the thread, you know, and it's this, it's this practice that's kind of like, um, it's kind of like a spiritual practice or a meditation practice in a way, or a shamanic practice. Just keep hold of the thread, keep following it. And the temptation to diverge from it and to go off into other things and fall off the, the edges of, of truth while you're writing is, is so great. But for one reason or another, and I don't know why, uh, in that poem, I seemed to be able to follow the follow the thread until it came to its natural end, and there was this sense of ah, yeah, here it is. This is this is complete. I've done my job well, in that sense. Hmm. Yeah, the whole poem um, it's kind of like a it's a bit of a wrestling match in there. Um, and it does come to this uh, point of renewal at the end of it, or rebirth. Um, so I'm curious, what were you wrestling with at the time, and where did following that thread lead you to? Was there any profound realization or shift that came once that poem worked its way through you? What was I wrestling with? Well, um wildness well it sounds like you're you're wrestling you're wrestling with the gods right yeah yeah, yeah. i mean i i the, the concept of wildness was something that i i've been very much in and and thinking about and trying to find my way with for for many years bef before that um and you know i'm i'm involved in wilderness visual work wilderness rites of passage work um and so there'd been this whole movement in me to, to you know, try and uh, help others find their way with, with the wilds in terms of nature uh, and through the process of that, you know, kind of working on themselves or allowing the land and um, uh, deity to work on them. But I was... I was, I was still and, and still am, you know, still trying to find out what what is what is this thing we talk about. Uh, we use this shorthand wildness for and mean so many different things by. Um, and it's only in the you know long after writing this poem, it's only in the last few years that I'm starting to tease apart some of the fibers of that and to be able to look at it through some different lenses and from some different directions and see ah okay here here we have the the wildness of of self the kind of you know erotic wildness uh the wildness of being in love with the world um here we have wildness in the sense of what is it to be a creature in relationship with the other creatures and beings of nature and of reality um, and one of the things 
I'm learning there is that wildness is not chaos. Wildness, you know, we we have a sense of it. I think because so many of us have kind of adopted this feeling of being so constrained that wildness is liberation for us. And yet, when we look at nature and we look at the wild, it's actually this incredibly complex system of agreements between things on how we behave. And you look at wildness in nature and it's not chaos. It is absolute beauty. Everything working in, in accord in these, in these incredibly uh, sophisticated and, and marvelous patterns. So yeah, wildness was the, the thing at the, mm. at the heart of me, but also uh, a great deal of anguish and grief um, about that time I was, I've been involved with the, the Dark Mountain project. I don't know if you've come across them, um, but mm. they were a, a kind of a, really a meeting place of all sorts of creative people and activists and thinkers uh, who back then, and this was kind of 2010, I suppose, something like that, um, who were starting to have those conversations of what if things have gone too far and we uh, all of our good works and our good words and everything are actually to no effect in halting the, the spiral into whether it's climate chaos or just kind of the system degradation of our world. What do we do? What do we do with that? How do we respond creatively? How do we how do we live? And so, back then, this was this was pretty radical stuff. And now it's um, a lot more part of the, the mainstream discourse about what's happening. Um, but I was very much wrestling with that. And so, in the poem, the the wild god coming with these questions um, to the, the the main character in the in the poem. You know, is me trying to go. Okay, how do how do we, how can we speak to the wild if it were to personify and come and say, "Hey, hey, what the fuck? Uh, how can we how can we respond to that in any kind of uh, genuine way?" So that was part of what was what was bubbling and boiling in me mm. at that time for sure. Yeah. How do you think the the wild makes itself known to us? My sense is that um, it comes sometimes in the form of that grief that you spoke about, of a feeling of uh, of a disconnection from something very primal and primary to us as human beings. Um, that sense of uh, something being lost and uh, something being forever unsatisfied unless we find some way to reclaim it or uh or renew that relationship so i my sense is that sometimes it, it just comes in the form of uh, like uh, trouble like fe feeling very quite troubled yeah i would i would largely agree with that i mean we're um from one lens at least you know we're 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 sad orphans in the world Mm. Um, we're, we're adrift from that sense of, um, of belonging, um, and of, uh, being in love and relationship with, with wild nature. Um, so, uh, grief is a huge part 
of our experience. Um, you know, others have, have written about this and the, the opportunity that grief gives us to enter back into relation, not just because it's uh, a kind of um, a start to have some kind of truthful experience with ourselves about our predicament, but something in its nature is is this gateway into into a, an experience again of, of wild nature. But I think the wild shows up in in all sorts of ways. You know, it's such a vast uh, a word that speaks in all sorts of directions to a vast number of things. You know, it shows up in our dreams every single night. Um, yeah. You know, or it, should or it can i have two small children so i don't dream nearly as much as i used to but when i do the wild is there you know it's this the, if if we're talking about wild there as the the swirl of things that uh is trying to tease us towards some kind of deeper understanding of ourselves in the world or an opening into into something mm. like that yeah our our wild nature is um trying to reawaken something in us. Um, you know, I think, you know, you talked about us as, uh, these, these orphans, right. And I guess what that brings up in me is, um, the fact, you know, that we haven't been abandoned by the wild, that we've actually abandoned it. And the beauty of that is that the wild is there waiting for us. If we're ready to reestablish that relationship. So unlike maybe a disconnection from our family or ancestry, where, uh, you know, it's maybe a little more difficult to reestablish that relationship, the wild nature is always there for us, ready for us to, to come back into relationship. And there's something mm -hmm. really kind of hopeful and beautiful about that. Well, the image of of nature is not one of a mother who um, folds her arms and closes the door <laughs> in your face when you come back, <laughs> crawling home after being away for ten thousand years. Um, it is of the one going, "Come in, come in. You're welcome. Sit." You know, um, for sure, it's it's there, and a wildness in in the sense of the wild, in the sense beyond just wild nature is is always there because i think it's intrinsically tied in with the vibrancy of uh the subtle floor of reality you know the the mm. ground of being is not something that is solid and static and understood it's something that is this constant dancing mystery and that's got as much to do with the wild as as anything else and that will that will always be there, even when we've clear cut the, the last hectare of beautiful forest. Mm. Yeah, Carl Jung said that we each have a two million year old man inside of us. <laughs> and that much of the problems that modern people experience is the disconnection from that primal self, uh, the source of all of our uh, libidinous erotic energy, but also our uh, intuition and instincts to mm. the, the deeper ways of knowing that have nothing to do with uh, books or uh, YouTube lectures. <laughs> no, we're, we're role, role playing a, a strange, strange creature at the moment. Um, I don't think we're very good at it. Um, and hence this kind of the constant longing for, for something 
that's there, which is which is really reality, yeah, the creatures. Which is right under our nose the whole time. Mm-hmm. You know, we're out there sniffing around for the answers, and it's the irony is that it's just right there if we just stop and tune in. But it's antithetical to civilization. It's yeah. you know the the whole premise of civilization as we do it is to try and contain and ring fence and just you know keep everything anchored down um, with certainty um, because that's what's safe and you know we were talking a little bit about trickster before this this recording and it's the same kind of energy it's like just you know it wants to burst out that wants to break apart the, the paving slabs and put up sprouts and uh, live. Yeah. And when you're talking about reestablishing that relationship with the wild, what I heard in that too, and maybe I'm just kind of um, inferring this, but is that uh, there has to be a respect for the boundaries. Because, um, you know, maybe the image of Mother Nature is the welcoming nurturing mother only it isn't quite true or at least we have to acknowledge that under the folds of her dress lie some um some beasts with long claws and sharp teeth um and i think um you know part of the problem we've had with the wild over the past couple hundred years probably or maybe more is um not respecting those boundaries because uh, you know, we're pretty, um, we're different kind of animals than most of the animals in the forest, right? And so there's something in that to me about like, um, she's welcoming you back, but be, um, tread lightly or um, don't rush in quite so fast and quite so eagerly, like maybe tiptoe in a little and check things out. We've, we've, we've forgotten our manners, you know, really, our That's wild good, manners. This is something I'm thinking about a lot at the moment, um, and I'm trying to write about it um, very, very slowly, is, you know, what, what, does it, what does it mean to have wild manners? And it reminds me, it just a bit of where you're talking there, just reminds me, I think you probably know this character Baba Yaga or Baba Yaga in, in Russian folk tales, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, who uh, let's talk, let's just suppose for a moment that she's kind of when the when the great welcoming mother turns turns around. <clears throat> there's there's also Baba Yaga there, kind of you know that's her, her other side. Um, and the way that characters approach Baba Yaga in in a story very much uh, determines their fate. So you have to approach Baba Yaga with um, a certain amount of kind of chutzpah and kind of bravado, but also impeccable manners. Mm. You need to know how to uh, how to relate in um, in a, a very honest, but also <clears throat> not dull way. There has to be a, a, a little bit of a, a spring in your step, but you you need to know. The manners with which to approach her and i think it's the same with the wild you know if she she has a lot of animals under her skirt um and if we were to uh use the manners appropriate for encountering her to encounter the wild i think we would do certainly better than we generally do mm. 
I love the way that you put that, that it's about manners. And of course, this is um, kind of front and center in my mind these days, uh, after almost a year of working almost exclusively online and seeing that uh, we've kind of lost our social manners when um, dealing with each other in this kind of uh, flatland world mm -hmm. um, where people lose their humanity and depth and they become such a a screen for our projections and judgments and criticisms. Um, yeah. So mm. I'm, I'm thinking a lot about manners these days too. So I, I, I really appreciate that, that word and trying to articulate what I was fumbling around with there. Um, mm. There's something too about like Baba Yaga. Yes. She's got, you know, these animals under her skirts, whatever, like it's a dangerous zone, the wild. And also she's more than willing to like suck on your bones Right. Like mm -hmm. not always. Um, I think, you know, we sometimes have this image of uh, nature and in the plant medicine world of uh, things like ayahuasca being this like loving green mother. Um, and I'm like, I, I don't think so. I, I think the the wild is much more ambivalent, ambivalent about us. Um, you know, we're we're also food. Mm -hmm. Right, mm -hmm. <laughs> and so yeah, and I think and I think we're we're so desperate to go back to the arms of our mother that we want everything to be our mother, and there's a lot of things that that's that's not the appropriate relationship. <laughs> that's certainly not the one that's gonna oh, gonna come out. Yeah, I recently rewatched the Werner Herzog documentary Grizzly Man, and oh, yeah. it's very much a story about that um, not being respectful of the true nature of something like a bear, but we could say uh, also the wild in general. Because um, mm -hmm. even, it's not just the big grizzly bears out there, but the little creepy crawlies too that can uh, that can take us fragile humans out. Um, so what that brings up in me is um, approaching with uh, manners, which maybe has in it a sense of humility and respect. And I think humility is a key thing for me these days. Um, something I think we're also losing in this online world where everyone's got a platform, everyone can have a voice and be an expert. And um, yeah. humility is a, is, is a rare quality. I am. Um, I'm a pretty big fan of the I Ching. Um, and have been for a long time. You know, the, the book of changes and one of the things that i love about it most um is it's it's various counsel um on whether it is time to be the the small person or the big person so it doesn't uh say this this is the, the absolute or this is the absolute but there is a time to be you know the, the little hut dweller and just carry your water and chop your wood and all that and there's a time to galvanize your armies with great speeches and go onwards or whatever the, the image is you know and um yeah we kind of um we forget at our peril i think that um that it behoves us generally to to be humble it it just that the world opens mm -hmm. you know and there's a time to to be that you know titan being um but the world the world moves in a very different way when you're in that kind of space um and you know i think you know we could talk for for hours about why that is um 
you know, and I think a lot of us feel so powerless in our lives that when we get a sniff of some kind of power, um, it's it's tempting to just just suck it up and and there we are, slightly more powerful over someone else, and we've lost we've lost the world. Um, it's a tragedy. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking about that. Uh, my wife and I were on a walk and we we're kind of talking about some of these dynamics that we see online and a lot of the judgment and criticism and all of that and like unsolicited advice <laughs> and um, how that that does make us feel powerful in the moment. Like it, it gives us some juice, right? But ultimately it's isolating, I think. At least that's the way it feels to me. The more uh, I allow myself to get into that judgmental, critical mind, the more isolated I feel. And I'm, so I'm getting like a little hit that is very short-lived. It's like a little hit of crack or something, but mm-hmm. it's not the sustained uh, goodness of human connection, which is, yeah, really what I, which is really what I crave, right? It's yeah. really what I want. I'm totally with you there, for sure. It's um, it's just a little bit of sugar mm. or crack. Yeah. <laughs> Go, goes through the system super fast, right? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, and 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 it's a temptation, you know. It's, um, but hopefully, hopefully, we're becoming an adult. You know, one of the qualities of being an adult is to be able to see temptation and go. Nah, mm. <laughs> actually, this isn't going to take us anywhere good. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I'm thinking too, you know, as we talk about this call of the wild, you know, that comes through in this poem, and I think really evokes that in people. I think that's a lot of the response is they're feeling this like inner two million year old person wake up a little bit and go, Hmm, I want to feel snakes in my arms and a badger in my kidneys and all this other great like imagery that you use, right? Like it's, it's really visceral. And, uh, the, the illustration that Rima made, uh, for that poem of the, the figure with all of these animals in the body is just, wow, it's so evocative Mm. to me. So that stirs something in us like a call and then um, you've got this uh, prose piece called Nettle Eater that is really about you. I don't know how autobiographical or ha- how fanciful it is, and it doesn't matter, but the, the you in the story hears this call to the wild. And um, I think is it, the book is in like four seasons, right? So it's like this whole year-long uh, experience of, heeding, hearing this call to the wild and and following it. You know the call. All your books speak of it. If I differ from you, it is only in this. When the call came, I heeded it. What the call commanded, I fulfilled. The call said, Go to the moor. Live wild there. Eat only nettles. 
for one year. This is what I did. The first season saw me weak as straw. My limbs shook, my vision shimmered, rollicked, and rolled. The world was made of water, and I was a ship, tall on the waves, easily blown. This was my youth in the world of nettles, their taste still unfamiliar. Waking in the night, wearing fire gloves, my hands were stung to red rags, pierced with pins. They buzzed like ferocious bees. I bucked and retched and buckled, thought I would probably die soon enough. Another skeleton in a gully to be found by walkers in the spring. I was seeking something unknown, unknowable. I knew the names of it. I had read a thousand books describing it. But the beast itself roamed out beyond the edge, and in the deep centre of things. Yes, in the fire of fire, and the water of water. Eventually. I knew. I had to let myself become so mad that to be in civilization would destroy me. Fall into a state so feral and lost and essential that only the wildest places of the moor could tolerate and sustain me. I walked up. The long hill from town into the wild of nettles, and ignored the screaming animals of my addictions and dreams and desires. Civilization fell off my back like dust and lies. I felt as if I'd been hunched against a wind all my life. My fists clenched, my eyes screwed tight. Now. The moor and the nettles and my madness told me, enough. Could you talk a little bit about that story? Because I'm gonna I'm gonna play it in the podcast. Okay. Around that time,、uh, Rima and I were spending a lot of time out on the moor,、uh, uh, camping out there, and we talked a lot about whether it would be possible to live wild on the moor. You know, just go totally feral and、um, be out there.、Uh, and this was kind of again connected in with conversations around the Dark Mountain project of you know, okay, how,、um, what stage are we in here? <laughs> what what kind of what kind of prepping are we talking about? And so this curiosity about the possibility of living wild on Dartmoor was very much on my mind when I when I wrote Metal Eater. And yes, it's the account of a man、um, going out onto the moor and living exclusively on nettles for one whole year, and what happens to him、uh, in that time. And we were talking about this just before the before this conversation.、Um, there's this great story of the Tibetan saint Milarepa,、um, who、uh, was a very bad man, <laughs> a very naughty boy. 
and did lots of very bad things, including murdering people using his his magical powers. Uh, and when he had his moment of realizing that perhaps this wasn't the, the right way to go, uh, he went and lived on nettles alone for seven years in a cave, and he turned green and learned to fly and became... <laughs> I love how casually you mentioned that. He turned green and learned to fly. But, yeah. Um, but kids, this I is mean, not advice. We're not saying this works. <laughs> <laughs> this should be a caveat to anything I say, really. Um, uh, and, and he's now Tibet's kind of best-loved saint, really. Um, so he was on my mind, certainly, when I was writing Metal Eater. Um, and you're right to point out that there's a kind of there's a kind of continuity between the two um, one is uh, the realization of the loss of wildness and the other is what happens what might happen if you respond to that call um, and I don't want to say too much about Natalita really because if you're going to play it then um, I'll let it speak for yourself but it's a piece that I'm really really fond of um, I touched on the notion of trying to tell the truth and in my in my writing this is always what i'm trying to do i'm trying to tell the truth but tell it slant as emily dickinson said it's like there, there are these ways of approaching um important or beautiful or powerful things subject matter entities of uh of meaning or insight uh which if we just approach them boldly through the forest, crashing, crash, 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 crash. We scare them off. And I think we, you know, the whole reason that, that kind of art exists in one way or, or from one perspective at least is, is to use this slant wise language like we're stalking a bear or something. Uh, you don't speak about it directly. You, you approach it in this, in this way. So Nethalita was my attempt to do that um, whilst turning to face it a bit more um, bit more face on than I've done before but um, again to tell to tell the truth yeah truth is a is a funny word and uh, it's definitely one of those words I've been wrestling with for a while um, like how much do I actually believe that there is something that we can definitively call a truth um, what's your mm -hmm. take on that like you've used this word a few times um, what do you think of truth and can we ever approach anything? Is there anything that we can say is truth? Well, assuming we're, we're not talking about truth as a fixed thing of, ah, okay, I've, I've seen the light. This is the truth. You know, um, that's not what we're talking about here. I, that's clear. Um, but there is, there is a quality of things which has truthfulness in it uh, or honesty, um, which when you hear it, when it's like when you when you hear a speaker um, uh, in whatever context speak in truth, so their words are true for themselves in that context. Something happens in your body, in our bodies, I think, or in the fibers of reality in the weird or the word the, the there's a twanging and a singing and you if you're if you're alive to it um you can recognize that when someone is is doing that and they might be lying the words the words might 
be lies, but if they are telling a truth in, in that lie, and I'm a storyteller, so this is what I do all the time. You're a professional um, liar. <laughs> I'm a prof semi-professional liar. That's how I used to describe myself. Um, oh, you did. <laughs> yeah. Um, then, then, you know, some, it's, something happens. And that's truth. That's the kind of truth I'm talking about. Mm. And when you're in that, so it's a field, I think. Yeah. Mm. Um, and when you're in that field and, and if you are someone who is in love with the truth in some, some kind of way, then, then something starts to sing inside you. And the danger of course of that is that you then will believe anything they say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's, it's like charisma. It has its own, its own dance and its own, own power. Um, and it can get to be a very heady, uh, heady mix of, of things. But if um, that's that's what I'm talking about when I talk mm. about truth, really. And yeah. it's that thread, the same thread that, that William Stafford was talking about. It's like, okay, if I'm writing and there's, you know, if this this sentence that I'm writing, is it is it true? You know, it, when we use the word true um if you're a craftsman uh, or craftsperson of some kind you know you use true in a very different way which is that this is this is has balance it's it's straight it's correct or it's aligned um that's much closer than some kind of mathematical logical yeah version of truth because in the, that's exactly where my mind was going when you're describing what truth means to you is i'm a kind of a craftsperson too. I've done some woodworking and I'm a bike guy. So I'm thinking of how to true a wheel uh, and course, um, yeah. how it's always a relative proposition uh, yeah. that there is no ultimate truth, but it's always relative to where I'm at <laughs> in that moment. And mm -hmm. so when you said the word honesty, it, it uh, resonated for me with that. Like mm -hmm. this is true. My truth at this moment it, that it's aligned with my actual experience and I'm doing my best to wrestle with words in order to express that so that something of the intangible truth within me is felt in you. And I think that's that thing that happens that you're talking about when you hear someone go at something slant wise, that particular story in, in Nettleader, not many people are gonna relate to that specific experience of going out on the moors for a year and subsisting only on nettles, right? But what that character goes through in that story is maybe the thing that's going to resonate, right? Yeah, so the specifics of the the details of the story aren't as important as the underlying experience that it's attempting mm -hmm. to communicate. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So if, if we have a very um, linear, unsubtle, notion of truth or honesty then metaphor and simile die because yeah. they are they are lying you know you're saying one thing is something else that's not true <laughs> how yeah. can this be you know but it's part of magical language and this is this is why we have image this is why we have stories this is why we have um poetry that that can move us even though like you say it's not our direct experience it has the capacity to open a door in us or start to make something sing or come alive um and that's that's truth and we i think you know there there's there are almost two worlds one of aphorisms uh 
you know, in, in, in terms of speaking the truth. Um, you've got aphorisms, which are like, okay, kind of yogi tea bag, um, things of, you know, this is, this is a true thing. This is a true thing. This is a true thing. And then you've got poetry, which says an orange is an apple and the apple is on your head. Or that you're someone you're, with a bow. Or you know, that you have snakes in your arms. You have snakes in your arms. Doesn't everyone have snakes in their arms? Well, I have snakes on my arms. I have tattoos. Ah, but uh, uh -huh. when you talk about that, it brings about a whole like embodied feeling or uh, emotion, right? And yeah. emotion is like connected to me to emotion. And so it brings mm -hmm. up a feeling that like is very visceral, like literally felt in my guts. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, I hear you. I, I, I used to, uh, way, way back when I was, when I was young, I, um, <laughs> I studied theoretical physics um, uh, before I dropped out. And then I went back and studied it some more, and then I dropped out again. Um, and one of my favorite books at that time was a book called Physics as Metaphor. Um, mm. And it's kind of the opening paragraph of it, which is really all I remember about the book, um, was just making this point that in in our our world we have forgotten that the the language we use in science uh, is still metaphor for something beyond it. Um, and uh, in later years, uh, I trained as an acupuncturist. And so I learned the whole, um, you know, uh, East Asian systems of describing what's happening in the, in the body, in the, in the mind, in this, in this thing we are. And it's all metaphor, you know, and it's, it's quite clear that it's metaphor. It's, it's, a, it's a poem of, of what's happening. Um, and yet it's a very graceful, useful metaphor. Um, so in Sometimes a Wild God, for example, some of the, the language I use in there to talk about the internal organs is actually coming out of Ch Chinese medicine background. Um, yeah, I suspected that that's that. where it was coming from, yeah. Uh, rumbled. <laughs> <laughs> well, you gave yourself away when you, when you mentioned in your bio that you're, you're an acu- or sometimes acupunk. Ah, uh, yes. Damn, I'll have to, I'll have to remove that bit. <laughs> retain yeah. some mystery yeah man keep that intrigue alive <laughs> don't give too much away brother mm -hmm. you know i don't want to pull back the curtain all the way here i know i know no i'm very much uh I, i'm with you in that the metaphor for me is like the language of the soul and um if we start taking everything literally including science and that's that's a narrative that I hear a lot these days, that science is like the only thing we can truly count on. But people not realizing that a lot of what they're hearing from science is theoretical. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> like the Big Bang is a theory, people. It's, <laughs> it's one version of the story that makes a few people less uncomfortable. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. But there's a whole other swath of people who have no relationship to that particular story. <laughs> people want, want a church. Uh, and science is uh, a good fit for a lot of people at the moment. Um, yeah, it seems yeah. like a really safe church to join, but only safe if you're not worried about the death of your soul. It's, it's not necessary to have the death of your soul um, in science, um, but um, it does seem to be a, an occupational hazard for a lot of people. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think a sleep, it, a sleep of the soul. 
But I think that's in, just indicative of the culture in which science is happening right now at this time, because the old scientists were very much um, living in that metaphorical world. You know, if we think about the origins of science being alchemy and uh, magic mm -hmm. and things like that, right? So I think yeah. it's just more an uh, indicator of where our culture at large is at these days. I think just very, to put it very simply and metaphorically, very head-centered. Mm -hmm. And in a kind of headless chicken run around dance to try and find some safe place, I think. Yeah. In a you know, huge sea of uncertainty and um, a kind of a looming storm on the, on the horizon or at the door or in the house. Yeah, or in the body. Um, you know, something I hear a lot these days when I poke my head out of my... Um, yoga cave is that uh, there's a lot of struggling with things like uh, sense making and meaning and uh, purpose you know I've heard uh, people call it actually um, a meaning crisis mm. and it seems like storytelling and poetry have been a way for you to extract some meaning from this wild and uh this is wildlife <laughs> confusing sometimes uh confounding painful joyous all of it right um so when did you come to storytelling and, and writing in general first i i don't honestly know whether they have helped me extract any more meaning honestly, um, but they're something I'm compelled to do uh, mm. and seem to be part of my purpose, um, to use your word. I've always loved stories. And when I was, when I was young, when uh, me and my sister were really little, uh, my mum would read us Russian folk tales uh, because she'd lived in Russia uh, briefly in the 60s and come back with a whole load of books, the folk tales. So we were brought up um, on this kind of diet of Baba Yaga and Kostya Dethalus and Ivan and Vasilisa and all, all, the, all the characters. Um, so they kind of went in and I, I'm guessing they kind of formed part of my, my cosmology fairly early on. But in our household, my sister was the artistic, creative, singing one, and I was the um, I was the geek, uh, um, and you know, sitting there programming my computer and uh, painting lead miniatures and doing role playing games and um, <laughs> going off, yeah, kind of basically preparing to follow this line um, to university to study theoretical physics and all of this kind of thing. Uh, and so I did that, and it was only when I um, I was at university the second time, and I was I had, for one reason or another, I had come across the poetry of Pablo Neruda, and the writing of Elizabeth Smart, uh, um, Canadian writer, and they ignited something in me that was kind of latent, this love of language, um, but this sense of possibility of what writing could do and how it could. 
how it could move me, their words could move me in a way which was just extraordinary. You know, these in the pages of these books, these little powerful, magical things. And it's like, oh my God, here is something. I want to be part of that. I want to be doing that. And it was about that same time that I realized that if I followed the theoretical physics route, I would end up sitting in front of a computer screen in a bunker underground watching particles smash into each other and recording logs, you know, uh, for the thousandth day in a row. And I thought, shit, I love trees. <laughs> I love the outside world. I can't do it. I'm not going to go there. And so I started writing a novel one May day in 1990 somewhere. Uh, there was this little window of opportunity uh, and a voice came through the window saying, if you start writing a novel, today good things will happen and if you miss this window you might have to wait another 10 20 30 never years and with the bravado and naivety and innocence of youth and a certain amount of grace i jumped through that window and i started writing uh and i didn't look back really um i'm still working on that novel 25 years later um, um i'm almost there now <laughs> <laughs> But um, but it, I had no idea what I was doing, but I kind of picked up a myth and started to try and write around it. And then as I was doing this over a number of years and trying to you know, get rubbish jobs to pay the rent in terrible flats in Edinburgh, um, I also became aware when I, when Every so often I would emerge, not from my yogic cave, but from my dingy little writer's sweaty den. Hey, uh, look, that's what my yogic <laughs> cave looks like too. <laughs> no, 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 it, it doesn't. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, it's just like a, like a feng shui'd on. Um, uh, and I would meet people and they would, uh, they would ask me what I did and I'd say, I'm, I'm a writer. And then they would ask me what I wrote about. And I was too shy to be able to tell them. Mm. And the words died on my tongue and I, I couldn't tell the story of what I was writing about. And eventually, to cut a very long story short, I realized or felt that in my apprenticeship with words, I needed to be able to do something that was, was oral as well. And so I started telling stories and I started with one particular Russian folktale called uh, Maria Morevna, uh, Maria Morevna, the lovely Tsarevna, uh, about a very powerful warrior queen. And it's a really, really long story. And I would try and tell it at open mic nights where I had a 15 minute slot and it was a complete disaster. And I had to get, um, well, I felt that I had to get um, very, very drunk and very, very stoned before I could even get up in front of these people. So that, so, so uh, obliterated in fact that I couldn't see the audience. And as far as I was concerned, I was just telling this story to God um, mm. or whatever name I had for the divinity back then. Um, and it was pretty disastrous, but it, um, there was enough goodness in it that I continued. And that was about 20 years ago, now, 15, mm. 20 years ago. Um, and so I persevered. And then about five, six, seven years ago, uh, to jump forward, Rima and I uh, decided to, um, to live in a truck uh, and so we bought a very old 1966 lorry and instead of just building a house on the back, we decided to build a storytelling theater. Um, and that then became our life for some years, living on the road, telling stories wherever we went. 
um, whether it's at festivals or fairs or just in pull-ins or laybys or forests um, on the road. And that's really, you know, I was I was a kind of barely adequate storyteller before that, um, but really living on the road and telling stories and being totally immersed in it, that's where I think I learned to certainly become a better storyteller. Mm. And I'm, I'm competent now, I'm a competent storyteller. I can hold a story mm. and I'm, I'm interested. Well, um, and that brought you to actually teaching storytelling. And when I, when I heard that, you know, I saw that you're offering some workshops and things and a longer, I think, six-month uh, mm. course. The first thing that came to my mind was, how do you teach somebody storytelling? Uh-huh. Well, I'm not going to tell you. You have to sign up for the course, man. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's, it's not it's, – it's one of these things. It, it, there's some of it which is, which is craft and there's some of it which is art. Um, or you could say there's some of it that's very straight line stuff. There's some of it that's just full of spirals. And so what I'm trying to do with the workshops and the course is, is explore some of both sides of that. So some of, you know, what makes for a good storytelling. Um, and, you know, there's some very simple stuff that helps people be better storytellers. Everyone tells stories all the time. It's what mm-hmm. we do. It's what we, it's the soup we swim in. Um, we don't swim in soup, do we? from in the sea <laughs> this is where i'm going wrong um You're mixing metaphors uh, <laughs> uh, there's so many too many all at once um and you know so so knowing your story really well so i can i teach people techniques how to know their story really well so that when they get up to tell it mm-hmm. and they fall into that terrible terrible space of not knowing <laughs> yeah. what is what happens next your mind goes blank I, mm-hmm. yeah I, I teach them how to how to handle that how to avoid it okay. um, and also you know in the telling there are some very straightforward things about how you interact with people during telling how you mm. use your voice how you how you hold the space um, and you know how how you um, how to relate to your story in a way that um, that is infectious for other people so enthusiasm for your story being one of the, the big qualities there but also the these more magical aspects of it you know this notion of stories as entities that have their own life and that as a storyteller or someone who tells stories what you're doing is is having a relationship with this entity and so how do you how do you deepen that relationship how do you have a healthy relationship with that and what are you really doing when you're telling stories you know what what are you what are we trying to do here? Because mm-hmm. to be a storyteller is a huge term. Again, it's about as huge as or huger, but maybe than wild. Um, mm. You know, there's a lot of a lot of different aspects to it. A lot of different ways you can be a storyteller. Um, but we were talking about um, talking about this on Sunday. Just gone, I think, was the last last class. Um, how when you're telling a story, you're I I think you're telling a story to at least four different audiences. So one is the people that have gathered to listen or that you've held captive and, <laughs> and forced your story on. Uh, you will listen to my story. Uh, the other is the kind of non-human world in the place. They love stories. It loves stories. Um, so I encourage my 
um, the people on my courses to go out and tell stories to um, to the forest and to graveyards, particularly, and things like this. You know, to get acquainted with how it is speaking without an audience feedback, and then you're telling the story to yourself because why would you be telling the story if it doesn't still have some juice for your soul you know mm. there comes a time with all stories i think um in my experience anyway of, of feeling like ah okay we're done at least for a while i got mm. i got mm-hmm. that usually it happens in mid telling suddenly the thunderbolt of, of what that story has for me comes what in. an awkward moment when the inspiration just leaves you <laughs> uh but it comes it comes with it comes with great joy as well and yeah. love and if you if you have a, a good loving relationship with the story entity then it's not like you suddenly just fall out of love with it and then i just mean you. from a kind of um a in the like if you're telling a story in front of a group of people and all of a sudden you're like oh this story just has nothing left for me anymore um uh-huh. so what do you do do you like do you acknowledge that and say i I got to stop or, or do you kind of work through it and get it out? It's well, uh, what usually happens is that there's um, it doesn't happen as that kind of sinking or something leaving. It just happens that there's a a deeper um, understanding of why I was telling that story in the first place. Uh, More like like a light bulb moment. And then after that, it's more like, ah, okay, I can put you down now for a while. I get you. Yeah, yeah. So like the reason why that story was resonating so much with you comes to you and you have like the great revolution, like, ah, I, yeah, I, I, I've had that kind of experience with other things. Mm -hmm. I get it. So yeah, like you're able to tell me about um, teaching storytelling quite a bit about it without getting like specific, right? So Uh (laughs) we're able to uh, just give a little bit of milk without giving away the cow. Um, That's right. I really appreciate that because it gives me a better sense of of what's what that's like, what that process is like. So I I love I love talking about storytelling. I I, I, I'm really passionate about the um, the possibility of of people enjoying storytelling and and getting better at it because it's such a joyful folk medicine really it's you know yeah well um i was gonna ask you about the medicine of storytelling but first um just when you're in the course with people is there a point where you get people to choose a story and then to tell it uh to you and the other people in the course so are people practicing the storytelling in the course there's, there's a tiny, tiny bit of that. One of the ironies of running a storytelling uh, workshop or course is that there isn't a whole lot of time for actually telling the stories. So what we do is we tell parts, we tell them in different ways, or we'll tell like a skeleton version of the story, um, or we'll practice um, how it might be for someone to have come in halfway through your storytelling and you oh. need to give them a summary and then go back to telling the kind of more more elaborate version that, and, and things like that. Those, that's the only kind of stuff, that's the kind of stuff you can only learn when you've taken it on the road and set up in the middle of a, a square or something. So that's, that's like, that's the pro tip stuff that you can <laughs> pick up when you've done it like that. Right. I know what you're talking about because I've done busking and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Like where you're just throwing yourself out there and like, we're teaching a, a workshop or something as a yoga teacher, somebody walks in, 
half an hour late and you got to give them that quick summary. So what are mm -hmm. the, yeah, I get it. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So, so some of what I'm talking about in, in the workshops is, is really kind of showman stuff. Yeah. Right? That's the kind of tradition that I'm working in. Now, do you teach everyone how to affect um, a lovely accent like yours? Because that's got to be part of the magic of storytelling is having a great voice. Not at all. Not <laughs> at all. I mean, obviously, I hear my own voice and I want to be sick. You know, that's a universal experience pretty much. Um, uh, so now, you, you can learn to love it. <laughs> you can. You can come to terms with it. I, I, it, I have a better relationship with it. Just do a, do a podcast for a couple of years and edit it yourself. And you'll, have, you'll have to uh, learn to be okay with uh, your voice. Man. I've been editing an audio book of, of the Firebird for, uh, it seems like, about 300 years Dude, now. Dude, that's, that's I rough. Have, that's if rough. I have to listen to that to my own voice, oh, it's awful. Um, but Yeah, no, everyone, I mean, just, I, just a note to people listening. Every time you tell an author they should record an audiobook of their book, you have no idea that that's one of the most that one of the most difficult, painful experiences of someone's life. So before you tell an author that they should do that, try it yourself. Okay, just read the the newspaper to yourself and listen to it a hundred times, and then you might be uh, purged of that urge to tell someone else they should do that because <laughs> it's hard for sure for sure <laughs> the, the recording is fine but the editing is, is yeah arduous um but no i mean seriously i um i um i think i'm on a bit of a mission to take some of the grandiosity out of um storytelling um you know, it's storytelling is enjoying um, a real resurgence these days, and it's not always been like that at all. You know, certainly when um, when I started doing it in, in Scotland in the um, kind of late nineties or whenever it was, um, it was starting to have a big resurgence there, and suddenly there was this huge rush to um, kind of archive load of Scottish traveller stories and, and things like that. And but and before. Um, you know, in the 80s and 90s, um, and it was a bit later in in England, but it's very it's very of the moment now, and there's a lot of interest not just in traditional storytelling, but kind of you know narrative shaping and you know all the, the kind of the dark arts of storytelling as well, which are which are fascinating. Um, but I'm I'm really 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 believe strongly that it's. Um, it's very, very ordinary, and part of its great power is in its ordinariness. And yes, there are sacred stories which carry huge, huge, huge constellations of power, um, but I don't want it to become a stadium thing. Yeah, or like too precious a thing. Yeah, yeah. Like we should be able to tell a sacred story uh, having a few beers at the pub or around the campfire, Yeah. Mm -hmm. no. Wouldn't that make it really sacred, actually, if we could just be more um, kind of human and down to earth about it? Yeah, I'm all for sticking a pin in pomposity where, wherever yeah. I can. Um, we got that so. in common. <laughs> <laughs> the trickster's alive and well in us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the, so in, in this country, obviously, we had... Um, uh, a long time ago we had the kind of alive bardic tradition um and one of the roles of the bards wasn't just uh, um 
tell stories, tell the traditional stories, or make praise poems of their their rulers, but to use satire uh, as a powerful tool for deflating those who needed deflating. We call um, it taking um, taking the piss, right? We the, we take, Canadians learn that from you guys. Uh -huh, yeah, <laughs> and it's you know there's in some of the circles we move in there's so much um uh heavy sincerity um, yeah you know and uh so yeah the role of the storyteller or the, or the bard or whatever is to stir that pot a bit as well um mm. you know and obviously you can take that to its extreme and some people do and they're a total pain in the ass and you have to kick them out of wherever you are but um that's part of our job as well yeah that's interesting you mentioned that um, just kind of in passing, but some of the circles that we run in can be uh, heavy with sincerity, man. I I feel that. I, don't, I haven't articulated it that way before, but you're the wordsmith, so thanks for that. Um, that really nails something. Now, <clears throat> you're being invited as, you know, thanks to some of this work that's gotten out there and kind of touched a lot of people, you're probably getting more invitations to participate in conferences and things like that. And so maybe uh, into some of these quote unquote transformational spaces mm -hmm. that can be so heavy with uh, sincerity and so much of the trickster is like still in the shadow, like, unacknowledged, uh, refused, uh, repellent to some of these mm -hmm. very sincere people who God love them. And, and hence rampant in the underbelly of a lot of these things. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like, it's mm -hmm. all in the shadow. Right. But I wonder like, as you go into those spaces more with this kind of trickster spirit alive in you, does it ever get you in trouble? I've never been in trouble in my life. <laughs> You're, you're full of shit. <laughs> um, no, it, uh, it has in the past. Um, you know, I've fallen prey to um, kind of, I think, living out a kind of trickster role. As yeah. much as anyone who's um, uh, got that kind of thing moving in them. Um, you know, I'm 48 now, and I think I've got... Uh, I'm not, I'm not 48. I'm 48 next week. I'm still 47. I should enjoy my youth while I still can. <laughs> um, uh, I thought I was 46 a couple of days ago. God knows what I think I am in a few days. Um, uh, I think I've got a better handle on it. Um, mm. You know, it's... <sighs> There's this beautiful book, uh, which you may know, uh, called Trickster Makes This World by Lewis Hyde. Yeah. And... Um, <laughs> was kind of one of my training manuals for, for <laughs> learning about trickster for and, responsible tricksterism. Yeah. 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 And, you know, kind of being, I was, I was going to talk about that because he speaks, I think about trickster as being this kind of third energy, which moves yin from yang, yang from yin, you know, to kind of keep the, the whole world, kind of moving in these transform necessary transformations happen. keep keep stirring the soup keep stirring the soup for sure but i um i think i'm i've needed to actually learn how to be a bit more comfortable with my with sincerity 
you know, mm. because mm-hmm. my, my it could be a defense in- against sincerity. Yeah, totally. My my natural inclination is to uh, is to be the the contrarian and uh, you know be just keep everything dancing, kind of you know no one quite knows where they are, um, and hopefully, latterly, I think in the last five years or so i've um i've grounded that a bit and i'm not quite as much of a dick as i used to be I, I live in, i live in hope you know yeah. oh totally <laughs> man you know, we're we're right around the same age and uh i think it wasn't until after i turned 40 that i started to disidentify with the trickster which um i used to kind of revel in it i i would allow it to possess me and i would um, justify that by saying well that's just who I am. And that's what I'm here to do is to stir shit up and make everyone uncomfortable for their own good, right? This kind of grandiosity uh, that comes with possession by an archetype. Mm, mm. And then um, seeing the kind of, that that really wasn't always working for me. <laughs> and, <you> know, <laughs> it was like uh, often working against me and um, really having to reckon with that part of myself and taking some time for it to actually come to this uh, more accepting loving relationship with that part um, without letting it overtake me, but also not refusing it too, like allowing mm-hmm. that side to come out and understanding that it might be medicine for me in that moment might also be medicine for the other person. Uh, but I think like what you said about it being the third element is great because it helps me disidentify with it and kind of accept that sometimes I'm going to say something you know, that's not going through the filter, the niceness Mm. or politeness filter, and it might come out kind of sharp. But with the maturity, if I see that it's um, unduly harmed someone, then I'm mature enough to admit that, accept my responsibility for it and make the repairs afterward, right? Whereas before I would have just said, that's your problem. You can't handle it, right? (laughs) Just so fucking arrogant. Mm Mm-hmm. So I feel that, man. We I think we have some things in common there. <laughs> I, think, I think we do, yeah. And thank God that we've come out, you know, somewhere on the other side, you know. It's not yeah, like we're, I mean, we're not totally done with it, but, you know. I, I think, um, you know, I, I think for me it's it was hugely bound up in kind of search for identity and yeah. trying to, you know, trying to answer that. Uh, that huge question which preoccupies us so much in our youth of who, who am I? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, who actually am I? And I, th- I think in all honesty, when um, I was fortunate when I, I did my first wilderness vigil about um, uh, 15, 15 years ago, something like that, and uh, got a lot closer through that experience to having some kind of uh, navigational system towards some useful sense of identity that allowed me to start putting down some of that fixation on, you know, am I am I trickster? Am I this? Am I that? Who, what is my mythic identity? Um, and just let it unfold in its own grace and time a bit more. Hmm. Yeah, maybe one last question. And it was the one that was on my tongue earlier. But having um, worked all throughout this COVID time online with people uh, leading shorter workshops and also a longer workshop or course, what would you say is um, 
maybe not the medicine of storytelling, but one of one or two of the medicines of storytelling. Like, how have you seen engagement in storytelling? Have you seen that change people during COVID? Well, anytime really, but I know you've been doing a lot of that work. Well, I mean, the, the irony is that I've been teaching a lot of these workshops, but I've actually been doing very little storytelling online. And we're uh, about to embark on a, a series, six live streamed big stories over the next couple of months, um, which I'm really I'm aching towards because uh, I love storytelling and it's good medicine for me. Um, well, let's start there. Kind of, how, yeah, is it, how is it medicine for you? Um, honestly, in, in complex ways that I can't articulate, which is yeah. a poor answer for a storyteller, but it's the most honest one. Um, it just seems to be something part of the, the, um, part of the landscape of me, uh, that keeps me well is, is storytelling, uh, particular kinds of stories. You know, it's like, um, it's like something you you've kind of taken on and it's like, right, okay, now you, now you must go and tell a story once a month. Uh, otherwise you'll start to become all crooked and strange. So it's, <clears throat> it's a bit like that. Um, but I, there is so much to it that I love. I, but I, I think in all honesty, the thing that I'm going to mention now, whether it's the thing I love the most, I don't know, but it, it's to be in that stream of community interweaving that has been happening since the the beginning of language um, of being with a group of people and weaving this thread for them to climb onto and go on this journey with um, and for that for that experience to contain this multitude of dimensions to its own medicine that that they can then take away is something so old and beautiful and simple that it's just it's it's in accord with the tides of nature mm. It's as simple as that for me, really. It's like, okay, there's, there's, no, there's no complexity there in a way. You're just moving with the stream. This is yeah. pure goodness. But also infinite complexity, so much so that mm. any attempt to articulate it or enumerate it fails disastrously. Mm. Um, you know, when you're talking about that, and you, I, I appreciate you saying, like, you know, I actually can't quite put my finger on it and don't want to. I, I get that. Um, whenever I try to talk about, you know, what my yoga practice gives me or what being a ceremonialist gives me, you know, opening up a space for people to do a shamanic journey together and then share their stories. Every time I try to articulate the things that it gives me or whatever, I, I, uh, it feels like uh, an affront to, mm -hmm. to the magic of the thing. And yeah. so I, I want to be I want to encourage people to be more comfortable with an answer like the one you gave and uh, not to have everything bullet pointed out in terms of 
Tom, what am I going to get from your workshop? Could you give me the five takeaways from this storytelling master? Like, I want to start pushing against that whole um, movement that I see happening in, uh, in like transformational spaces, just to uh, use that broad term. Yeah. But uh, I love that. And uh, so I'm glad that you're with me in that and just um, giving away enough to uh, spark some intrigue in somebody's heart and then leaving the rest up to them to take the leap in and uh, dive into the soup with, with mm-hmm. us. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, what the, the only merit in attempting to answer that question would be to inspire others to find out what that space is like, either as a listener or as someone who, who tells stories. Um, so I hope that, that something comes across with the goodness of it. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think more comes through even in just the way that you talk about storytelling. I think um, there's something if we're able to draw out some of your passion for the thing, uh, I think that will be the thing that truly draws people in rather than the list of uh, of takeaways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm. Um, I'm involved in this thing, a, a gathering of stories that's coming up um, that Ian McKenzie and the, my countryman, stuff. Ian McKenzie. He's on the yeah, next, yeah. he's on the next Island over from oh, us. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> my picture of Canada is just all these people living on little islands. I, I know that's exactly what it's like. Um, uh, and that, when is that? Sixth it's the beginning February. of February. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of storytellers getting involved in that. And I'm going to be telling, I think I'm going to be telling um, my very favorite story, which is um, called The Castle of Melvales, which is a Welsh Romany, uh, Welsh mm. Gypsy story. Um, and that thing, it's all online. And there's a, I'm, I'm inadvertently advertising this just because I want people to yeah. hear, um, hear a story and hear how I tell stories. Um, but there's a kind of pay what you can option for getting access to all of that um because it's a fairly hefty chunk if you want to sign up for the whole the whole lot um and maybe you can share the, the link to that yeah. I, I have no idea off the top of my head what it is um but it's there's some really amazing storytellers that are well worth listening to there um like jan blake springs to mind or michael, michael mead is part of that yeah. pat mccabe yeah. Yeah, some great, great folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and you. So, and me. So people come have something of the experience of Tom telling stories. And if that ignites some curiosity uh, or some spark in your soul, the, you know, the inner storyteller that wants to come out, <laughs> then he's also uh, sharing some things from his long experience being a storyteller too. And I heard you say once that you're mostly sharing uh, the mistakes that you've made, which is <laughs> really saving people a lot of uh, trouble and pain. <laughs> I, I, I do it so that other people don't. It's, um, yeah. <laughs> and that's maybe the most valuable stuff we can share is where all the places where we've really messed up. Oh, absolutely. Not our not um, our wisdom. No, just here's all the places where I've stumbled along. And the, the, the it's like a, is, is, is all in the gaps. Yeah, yeah. like so, some kind of like nature guide who's just basically pointing out all the, the dangerous things and the holes in the ground that, you know, that they've broken their ankle in and whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How you, that's very useful. 
<laughs> so let's not aspire to be great sages, but just kind of helpful guides through the territory, right? Uh-huh. I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> well, this is uh, this has been really great talking to you. We had a whole just to be transparent. Tom and I had a whole preamble before we hit record, and uh, been in kind of a unique space around how much to share online and how much to get into personal intimate things and we had a whole talk about that first and we weren't quite sure where this whole thing was going to go uh but we decided just to dive in and see where the currents took us and um it's been really uh, really nourishing for me to spend time with you and it's really kind of ignited a spark in me around storytelling and actually just seeing some of the ways that i'm already uh, a storyteller there's something really cool about that that I'm going to it's going to probably stay with me for a while. So I hope that anyone listening has gotten something from this too. And if they want to find out more about you, I'm going to include links to your websites and your your small press. There's so much stuff that you guys are doing you and Rima. Rima's an incredible artist and you guys have made this amazing puppet show. So there's kind of lots of cool stuff to dig into there and um you know, here's uh, here's a beautiful couple doing really creative things in a very alternative and independent way. And um, personally, I really appreciate that. And uh, it's inspiring to see you guys out there doing your thing while my wife and I are here doing our little thing, you know, mm-hmm. trying to do something fulfilling in the world, something that adds to the world rather than takes away from it. So mm-hmm. it's, I feel mm-hmm. like a kinship, you guys out there. Yeah. Bless on your you. island, Bless from you. one island to another. <laughs> yeah, we're we're currently known as Plague Island in the rest of Europe, oh, which Christ. is uh, not so great. But um, but no, <laughs> no. Thank you for those those words, Brian. It's, um, I'm glad that what we're doing is is inspiring. Um, yeah, there's a lot more to come. A lot great. More. Thanks a lot, Tom. Hey, hey, lovely to speak to you, Brian. If you enjoyed this conversation please consider supporting the podcast by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash medicine path or purchasing one of my yoga video courses or books. You can find links to everything at brianjames.ca forward slash resources. Thanks so much for your support. Without listeners like you, independent creators like me couldn't do what we do. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine upon your face until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.